This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film, I'm Tom Nolan. Now I'm Mario Ponzio, and that is a good double feature, Criterion Channel. The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. Yeah, you gotta do that. A really solid double feature. They'll probably pick up Midsommar, and then they'll do Wicker Man no, and I believe Midsommar. the correct name is... Yeah, as we established last week. Uh, as we established last week in episode 55, because today is episode 54. 54! I can count. Hmm. What happened in 1954? Let's see. Something... Um, Eisenhower was two years in, a year or so into his being a president. Nixon was like, I'm going to be president next. <laughs> then Kennedy stole it from him. Sure. Then Kennedy got shot. Nixon was like, whew, dodged a bullet there. Then Watergate oh. happened and Kennedy was like, well, I wasn't trying to be punny. I mean, it worked out though, it was punny. Then Sometimes Watergate happened and Nixon, Nixon got, we had to resign. Mm-hmm. And Ford became president because of his car assembly line. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. I don't think that was him. I'm so sober. I don't know what to do. We're doing two back-to-back episodes this week, guys. And we've had we've had sodas. I actually feel kind of antsy. We've had we've had two root beers. I feel I feel like my body's itching. Um, yeah, you and me are sitting up here with microphones in front of our faces. And uh, our, the bad thing is, our is bodies also, just kind I of also beer in it. Never consumed this much added sugar mm, ever. That that could be it. Yeah. I mean. Beer, like added sugar from beer, but like, but that's that's does that mean added sugar? That's just that's that's actually like naturally. It's balanced off with like, the alcohol. But the beer, like the sugar, is not even like added sugar. It's like it comes from the barley. You know, the barley is the sugar. Yeah. The yeast. You tell us all about the barley. Takes the sugar from the barley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Next week we'll get back to, to alcohol. It'll still be July when we record again. What are we gonna do? We have to drink another soda. Drink another root beer. They're like a, like a local seltzer. We'll just go to the. We'll do we did we didn't do it, which is go to the ginger beer. We'll do a ginger beer, and that's then you can still, mix it with all your rum. A lot of sugar. No, it doesn't matter though. It's still sugar. It's still sugar. We're freaking out. What what are we drinking now though? What, what is this? But we're drinking something that's actually lower in sugar. Uh, last week Tom gave us something that was, actually this is not lower in sugar. This has 23 grams of sugar per eight ounces. It's just diff- it's sugar from a different this source. Is, this contains carbonated water, actual sugar, not high fructose corn syrup, natural artificial flavors, and sodium benzenate. And that seems like something that could be locally made. Uh, and that is because it is Foxon Park out of good old Woo-hoo. East Haven, Connecticut. I love Foxon Park. 
to the left of us. Love it. Uh, we are drinking their white birch beer, caffeine-free. So, ladies and gentlemen, listen to this podcast. We will have no sort of substances in our bodies besides the 78 pounds of sugar that is currently coursing through our blood. <laughs> uh, our blood is asking a lot of questions today. And all the questions are like, What's why this? are you still cognizant? As always, it's all, I mean, it's, oh, wow. I used to love that, and it's still good. I can tell it's good, but it's so sweet. I like how how fresh the birch beer is, the white birch, compared to last week's very milky, like, creamy, high fructose corn syrupy root beer. And we're going to be drinking a root beer later on, which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. from from Foxland Park. I mean, it's good, though. It's good, it's good, but it's it's sweet. And, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to derail it for being sweet no but it is, it is sweet when you don't drink soda right like when exactly. your consumption of liquids is water mm-hmm. coffee with like a half a teaspoon of sugar iced tea with like a half a tea no like a teaspoon probably about a teaspoon of sugar and cream i get a lot of i get a lot, not from the tea but in my coffee i get a lot of sugar from the lactose mm-hmm. milk i sometimes drink milk because mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big boy with big <laughs> arms ladies um and uh, uh, a be- beer. <laughs> that was even a joke. I completely forgot the last one was. Um, and then, like, you know, hard alcohol, wine. At the end of this episode. Spike seltzers. I drink some spike seltzers. It's going to be mother. I've been here. actually drinking spike seltzers more recently. Don't tell beer. me that. Get out of here. Why not? You're out. What's wrong with that? What is that? that claw got, like, stuff? calories. No, I don't drink white claw. I'm not, I'm not from Jersey. White cl- is white claw or white clam? What is it? White, white claw. But I'm not from New Jersey. I'm not Joey Janella. I drink like bone is. and V. That's a wrestler. Um, they're fine. Like during kickball, when you don't need to have like a thousand calories. In Do alcohol. you have to drink during kickball? I mean, no, I don't have to. And some weeks I don't. Some weeks I just drink coffee, and it's hot out. During like, kickball, what am I doing? Yeah, huh. not during. Do you guys make some odd choices at kickball? No, that's how <laughs> kickball works. Club Walker, fall season starting. August 18th. What do you do with your coffee while you're playing kickball? Oh, I don't. I don't drink keep it next to you. I, I just put it. I put it over in the sidelines. Oh. But like while I'm standing around, because like it's like on Sunday, it's a whole event. I could get there at like 10. Yeah. We play some frisbee, uh-huh. and then we have a game for like 50 minutes. But we're there until like 4:30. What else are you gonna do besides have a couple spiked seltzers? I don't know, Mario. I don't know what to tell you. But you could do. I don't have any advice for you. You could read. You could read. Yeah. A book. What kind of book could you read? I mean, if you're us, you might want to read a book about movies from 1999. Yeah. Luckily. Especially 1999. It was a big year. Perhaps the best best movie movie year ever. ever. Yeah, maybe. According to Brian Raftery. You know, just might be. Okay, this is growing on me. I used to think it was too sweet, but no, this is good. This is really good. It is very good. I put some ice in it. Oh, I'm gonna let the sit get like watered down. Mm. Some soda purists just lost their mind, but yeah, water down your your birch beer is good. But yeah, maybe drink a birch beer and talk about talk about reading some books. Luckily, we already did that for you. If you don't feel like doing that, um, a couple weeks ago with our our good buddy JP, who we mentioned last week, also uh, we recorded a a long conversation about that book, best movie year ever. Uh, all, all about the movies that came out in 1999 by Brian Raftery. Um, so listen to that, and 
then we'll see you on the other side with our number 54s. It's a summer experience. If you're outside, you want to drink a beer, read a book. I don't really like to go outside. And we'll talk to you next I week. <laughs> I agree with you. That's how we're going to feel. That's how we're going to finish Pivotal, by the way. I agree drink a beer, read a book, and we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, I agree with you in theory. Everything you're saying, I agree with you in theory. Whatever. You've derailed this beautiful <laughs> intro, you piece of shit. But I think, sporadically... We're going to insert these little book reviews related, of course, to film. Mm -hmm. And the book we're talking about this week was uh, something you brought to my attention. It is Brian Raftery's Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. And it's a relatively new book. I believe it came out in April, uh, April 16th, Mm -hmm. so pretty pretty solid for that. So Best Movie Year Ever is... A kind of compendium of 1999 and yeah, the, the of, impact of 1999. And but I think the interesting thing about the book is that it kind of goes into the. It doesn't go into like I, I listened to a podcast and they were saying that it's like a, a what great, podcast. Um, this was the Watch on the Ringer. So Shea Serrano is from the Ringer also. So obviously his the the Ringer media a compatriot you know, of ours. Yeah, um, I've never talked to the man. That's why I call him Shea. <clears throat> I've never talked to him either. I just know his name is Shay Serrano because I've listened to his podcast before. Um, on The Watch, um, one of the things that they were saying, and Brian Raftery was on that episode, they were saying, oh, it was a great work of scholarship. And I think the, the problem is that it's not a great work of scholarship. It's a great work of um, research. And, and nostalgia. And, and nostalgia. I mean, it's basically just a rundown of how all of these movies, you know, all these important movies, and I'm saying important with air quotes, movies in 1999 got made. And I think, um, I think from really quickly, uh, uh, you know, a little a preface to, to our discussion of it, from a research standpoint, it's, it's fantastic. It's very the, good. He mentions in his, like, preface, um, or his foreword, I'm not sure exactly. I think it's his foreword. Pre-forward. <laughs> exactly. Um, that he uses both past tense and present tense when discussing it with um, the, the filmmakers, mm-hmm. the writers, and the actors. And he really, the, the people he's able to get to talk for this, he got everybody. For that, it sounds like he got yeah. everybody that matters. He did not get the Wachowski siblings. He didn't get anybody from the Matrix. Which but is, he's got he's got Nolan talking about the following. You well, know? I mean, the thing is, the thing with the following Matrix is that for this book, the Matrix is one of those movies where it's um, it's so well documented, like everything's been that said. you don't really you know there's nothing that he really needs to say about it. But it was such a big deal that um, you know it's it's like it can be avoided or anything. Like that. I mean, the Matrix. I think one of the interesting things about this book is that like. Some of these movies kind of creep in and out of other movies, and The Matrix is one of those movies where not so much, like, not as much as the Blair Witch Project, but not as much as the Blair Witch Project, but like which so apparently was sixth, the most important movie ever. Yeah, <laughs> in the Sixth Sense chapter, um, you know, M Night Shyamalan is worried that like The Matrix is going to take away like from his box office. That yeah, people it's are like in the third week at that point. Or that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That people are so invested in The Matrix that people will not go see, you know, The Sixth Sense. Um, and I feel like that happens in another movie, too, that people are just kind of like, well, this movie doesn't really matter. No one's going to go see this movie because the Matrix exists. Boys Don't Cry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah people, a... were, people were off of Boys Don't Cry. So it's a big, it's a big cross-section. Um, but, I mean, so let's, uh, you know, some of the movies that they're talking about in this are, like we mentioned, The Matrix, The Sixth Sense, you have Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Um, but those are kind of the big ones. I, th- I think the most important thing is is he has a a thesis running throughout this novel of a sense of identity. It's definitely not a novel. This this piece. Uh huh. Whatever. Just a 
Just call it a book. This book. This is a story of... True story. But he has this thesis running throughout the book uh-huh. about how, you know, it is the year of the millennium. Um, Technology is creeping up. Uh-huh. The Y2K threat plays a big part in the forward. Uh-huh. You know, he's talking to David Fincher about that, like, prank they played. Uh, where everything falls apart, and it's really just a long con. Which doesn't really sound fun. No, it doesn't. Like, conning people with Brad Pitt sounds terrible. Brad Pitt doesn't sound like a super fun guy. But the the thesis of this centralizes into the fact that these films are mostly about identity. You know, office space is about uh, fighting the bureaucratic culture. The, yeah. you know, Boys Don't Cry is about gender identity. Mm-hmm. Being John Malkovich is about existential identity. Fight Club is about nonsense. Uh, <laughs> What's I my shit about? What identity is that about? Uh, being... Bougie identity? Being... How bougie are you? The, being the best movie to ask you, what is Alan Cumming doing? Mm. Hot take. Old episode. What is Alan Long Cumming time doing? listeners. Episode 100. Check it out. Um... Or don't. We were not that good yet. No, that's a long episode. Um, pointlessly. Um, yeah. I mean, but and then you have the stuff, though, like Cruel Intentions and 10 Things I Hate About You. And, you know... Um... And that's and that's one of my big problems, too, is how like, he, he groups a lot of movies together that don't need to be grouped well, so together. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Oh, you know, let's, 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 let's dig in. So, I think we were talking about this off-air... A while ago, and we kind of agreed. And by off-air, he means re-recorded this previously, and the audio was terrible, and we're re-recording and it. And I messed it up. I don't know how, but you I did. You done fucked up. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of movies in here, in this book. I think... Once he, again, like, research-wise, it's I think great. the interesting thing is that he is essentially saying, by putting all these movies in this book, he's essentially putting all these movies in the same level. Right? To a... No, I, I think would he, not uh, say so. No, 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 but no, if he's no, putting, no. no I, but if he's putting all these, if he's saying, I mean, he 90, dedicates, he dedicates. 1999 blew up the big screen. But how, when he's dedicating two, three pages to Varsity Blues, but he's and also suggesting 20 that pages Blues, to American Beauty. Yes, but he's also suggesting that Varsity Blues participated in blowing up the big screen. No, I think he's he's talking about it's a, it's a matter of the pulse of the generation. Well, is it though? Like, is Varsity Blues representative not, of the pulse no, of the no, generation? No, because I I, don't, I think the thesis ultimately fails. I think. Is no, that's, Galaxy that's the big... Quest like representative of the pulse of the generation? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> How dare you, JP? I mean, JP is. I haven't is... read the book, but, but JP, seen, JP, you've seen all these. You've movies. seen the movies from '99. Yeah, and so I was just looking at the cover, and there's two things at the end there that aren't even on the cover, which are Magnolia and The Insider. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, so it's almost like a sheer mass quantity of good movies that right. he's talking I think, about. Right. I think, and I agree with you, but I also think that like, you know, something like election versus something like well, think, Magnolia. We're talking about apples and oranges. You know well, what I, I mean? Think, I think the argument well, of here, course. I think the argument here is, is let's say, let's say we say 1999 is indicative of a year in which people did not know their identity and they, had massive questions about their identity in the face of technology, in the face of prevailing political climate. You know, you had the impeachment of Clinton. Mm-hmm. You had the Columbine um, massacre, which is, is is a huge part of this book. Yes. And I think generationally, like, we, we span three different points. Uh, I was 13 in 99. You were 
17, 18, and 1999, mm-hmm. and you were 27. Mid- 27. So do you think, with the thesis of 1999 being the best movie year ever, in that it is, it is the year by which identity was really pushed and defined, do you think that that's an accurate statement? Well, I think it's, I mean, that's an interesting question. And I, I just, it's, just it's think a, about that for, for a bit. It's a good jumping off point because I have a lot of 1999, a lot of 1999 movies on my list. And I don't mean a lot in the sense that, like, I have 10 1999 movies on my list, but I think I have three or four, which I have, um, I've, I, I only have like two, I think, maybe. Um, okay, which would be if I have three, you have one more. <laughs> I have one more than you. Um, 1999, I think for me, was representative of exactly what you were just saying. In that sense that like a lot of the movies that came out really helped define my identity. I mean, the one movie I'm going to talk about, I think it's in the 20s. Um, I've already kind of started working on like what I'm going to say. And what I'm going to say is essentially going to start, I have no idea who I would be or where my life would be if I hadn't have seen this movie. And that's, and that's just like a fact. Um I don't know if that's representative. Uh, if I could say the same thing about like all the movies, um, like something like The Matrix, like means very little to me. Even though I saw it in 1999, even though I had friends that were obsessed with The Matrix, um, from you know the moment that it came out until like The Matrix and anim- I have three. He doesn't mention one. Hmm? I have three 1999 movies. He well, does not mention one. we already one. talked about Jesus' Son. Like, Jesus' Son is a big movie for me. I definitely didn't see it in 1999, though. I'm really talking about, like, having gone to the movies. 1999 was the year that I started to go to the movies regularly and have my mind fucking blown. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's so like that, 2004 was for me. Sure. Or, like, I mean, even 2017 in a lot of ways was for me. Um, where I would just... I would emerge from the theater and in 1999 it had to be a theater um, asking uh, just all sorts of different questions um, to myself that I had never considered asking before you know what I mean um, where's my car dude where's dude. my car uh, was that 1999 no, it was not. is that, that on like your a, list <laughs> I hope so I, I will make room for it <laughs> I think it's like um, 2001 and there, but there, it's it's funny because there's also movies, and those movies help shape my identity. But there's also movies that I really hate that came out in 1999, um, and I think that also helped shape my identity. You know what I mean? Like I fucking hated Cruel Intentions. I hated it. Even even like the aesthetic things that I'm supposed to as a man find really appealing about Cruel Intentions, I thought sucked. Ryan Phillippe. Yeah, Ryan Phillippe. <laughs> You're right all the way. Um, I mean, I, I already got my fill, and I know what you did last summer, so you know I was kind of done. <laughs> that yeah, had that had your fill. That had a good Johnny Galicki, Freddie Prince Jr., and Ryan Phillippe. Ooh, that's oh man, color down. Yeah, what do you do with that? Um, and I think those movies equally helped shape my identity. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I'm not. I don't want. I don't want this. I want this. And when I saw, you know. I don't really want to. I mean, so like when I saw like American Beauty, I didn't say like I just want to. For those keeping track. Yeah, I don't want. I didn't say I want to watch American Beauty over and over and over again for the next twenty years. I said I want more movies that do what American Beauty is doing. Um, I want 
I, I, I want to go, you know, in the year 2000. In the year, year 2000. 2000. In the year 2000. I want to go find those movies in the year 2000 that are go- are doing what American Beauty is doing, but doing it um, differently. And, like, my, I think, you know, the top of my list, I think, directly reflects some of the, ni- what I saw in 1999 movies um, that I liked. And that, that dictated what I was going to like forever. Yeah, you know what I mean, and that I'm still that I'm that is still being dictated today. You know what I mean? That I'm still in 2019 watching movies and saying like it's still shaping itself. Well, JP, you're a big film goer. It's like in '99, I, I assume you saw a lot of these movies. Did they? Well, something I was gonna say was, and again, I haven't read the book. Fight! I saw Fight Club in the theater, but it was a flop. Like nobody. No, yeah, they yeah, talk about that being. It. It, it, um, that's a big part of the beginning. Is talking about how. Nobody. I went to see everything back then, you know, and yet I still didn't see Magnolia until after I was out of theaters. Yeah, me, me, the me Insider. Too. I didn't see. I didn't go see any of these. So uh, Run Lola Run. I didn't see until after. I, I um, think. I think Run Lola Run doesn't need to be seen. To be honest. No, I know. Uh, but I was one of the five people who saw Office Space in a movie theater. Oh, really? Yes. And now, when you saw it in movie theaters, did it like did it speak to you at all? Were you just do you, I enjoyed did, the hell out of it. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think is interesting about the movie is that they kind of talk or the book, and they kind of talk about all the things they talk talk about the movies that didn't do anything in theaters, but then on DVD they became like cultural touchstones. That's what that's what I'm getting at is that it was a year or two later that a lot of this stuff really started to resonate, which I think I think is important. I think that's maybe like a thesis that you know. Rafferty misses is the fact that this is maybe the year where you have a pulse on a lot of independent film. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had stuff coming out of Sundance before, but like, you know, this is the year where they're looking at Sundance. So, you know, like, I don't know for Reservoir Dogs, but you know, some of the movies from the years before had been at Sundance, but like, you no, know, everyone's looking at Sundance and everyone's looking at independent films. So well, everyone's this... going to Sundance to find Reservoir Dogs. Exactly. Or Sex Lies and Videotape or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this mass influx of independent cinema, I think, more so in 99 than you do in 98, 97, well, or like years before. Well, independent cinema funded by major corporations. Exactly. So, I mean, he makes a point in the book by saying that, like, the major corporations at this point were really heavily invested in, um, like, remakes of things. So, I mean, he mentions Lost in Space, which apparently I remember on the podcast him saying that he's taken a lot of grief from people who really like the Lost in Space movie, like the Matt LeBlanc Lost in Space movie. It's, the, Lace, it's the Lacey Chabert movie. Lacey, um, for, yeah. for 12-year-old Mario, it's the Lacey Chabert um, movie. 13-year-old Mario. They were really interested in, apparently the major studios were really interested in just just doing that. You know what I mean? Taking existing IP that people really liked in, like, you know, the 60s, and they were marketing directly towards... Like a baby boomer generation, where and a lot of these filmmakers, and I forget how young David Fincher is. David Fincher is not. David Fincher's been making movies forever, but he's not like an old man. No, he's um, he is got a he's ni- born in nineteen sixty two, so he's fifty six right now. But that's and that's that's what I'm saying. So he's young. that's really young, and he seems like he's would be crazy old, but he's not. Yeah, so he's you know, he's, direct, guy, he's directing seven at thirty four. You would think that the guy that made. Uh, Benjamin Button would be like a seventy-year-old man, but he, he wasn't. He was only in his. He's forty-two. Still he haven't seen that one. He was making all the. He was making all the typical forty-year-old mistakes. It's like you making Benjamin Button four years. 
We'll do it. It's Pivotal Film Productions. Benjamin Button 2. I don't know. I can't. I can't. Here's the age. idea. Check this out. Hot take. Benjamin Button 2. He ages regularly. Yeah. He just ages normally. But he, it seems different. No. No, no. It just, no it's to just... him, it just seems different. And people are like, no, you're just, oh, you're okay. You're normal. He's like, but it just seems weird. Um, I think in, I think 1999 was one of, is one of the years where you had a bunch of directors that really kind of didn't care what anybody was thinking about anything. They just were wanted to make these movies, and for whatever reason, um, major studios were giving them the money to make the movies they wanted to make, which is funny. And I want you to talk a little bit about the Iron Giant thing too, in the sense that the, so the studios gave these directors money, Iron Giant. Oh, so the studios gave these directors money to make these really difficult films, but then like. When they saw the films that the directors were making, they were just like, whoa, this is really difficult. Pretty much across the board, all of the executives had questions, like major questions about like what these directors were fucking doing. You know what I mean? And I think, I think Fight Club is like a major one where just the, the studio was repulsed by what David Fincher turned into them. Um, and Iron Giant is such a difficult. They want a kind of this family approachable film, and it deals with such yeah. incredibly heavy themes that didn't even really like touch a 1990 crowd. I don't think Iron Giant really becomes anything until you know after 9/11. To be honest, like it doesn't become anything until like we get back into that jingoistic kind of ideology. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't remember Iron Giant being a thing ever. It becomes no. It becomes a thing around like two thousand three, two thousand four. I remember. I remember it being well reviewed and a big deal, and I showed it to Ethan at like six or seven, and it was very upsetting to him. And I was mm. like, I had no idea. Yeah, it was no, this my, upsetting. My kids felt the same way. They were just kind of like, I don't really want to do this. My kids were you know okay I mean? with. My kids were okay with it. <laughs> well, my kids are also not okay with your fifty eight movie, at all, at all. They wanted to have nothing to do with it. Um. So that, that just shows you what level, that, where they are. Um, but yeah, Iron Giant's a weird one because like, it wasn't even on my radar in 1999. It was not something I came into until much later through, like, probably through like the Miyazaki stuff. You and know what I mean? Like, and that's having my... experienced animation on that level, I went to find more movies like that and Iron Giant came up. And that's the thing where maybe I agree with him in that it's a big movie year. But not in the thesis of like this is the year where people are finding their identity, and this is what I want to get to. I think 1999. They're, they're looking for independent film. They're looking for new thought. They're looking for the the thing that can touch the pulse of the people and that could you know make thirty million dollars off of a three million dollar distribution uh, payment to which, to, a, to a small independent film. Which in 1999 was a big deal. Which still, is, which still is a big deal. Like, if Jason Bloom is doing this... Like, Jason Bloom's going to make a Magic 8 horror movie for, like, $3 million, and it's going to make $80 million worldwide. You know, he's, you, know you, you get small but, victories, and you, but, you win so, those. like, The Woods made... It cost $9 million, and it made, like, $20 million, and he was like, they allowed me to make another movie because they made $20 million. If you make a $9 million movie in 2019 and it only makes $20 million, you're fucked. $20 million domestically. But it doesn't matter because... No, everyone, you could still make $20 no, million domestically. I, and see, that's the thing. So, I mean, I would argue that... It's like, so we talked about Booksmart a couple weeks ago. Everyone's saying, like, what the, what happens to Olivia Wilde now as a director now that Booksmart bombed? And there's no way Booksmart doesn't make back its money. No, no, absolutely. You know what I mean? But, but it's just not going to make... It's not going to make enough money that people are just going to say. And that's that's the, that's the point I'm trying to make is is maybe 1999 blew up the big screen as the subtitle says, um, 
in the sense that like this is the year where people like the movie going audience in general tries to find the pulse of of cinema mm-hmm. like they you get phantom menace you know phantom menace kind of is the big elephant in the room of 1999 and that like people hate it before it comes out it comes out people hate it and they still hate it and you know it is it is the thing that like the internet culture the harry knowles everyone aspect, can agree upon yeah, yeah. um you know, of, of, of internet culture just bearing down on it. But internet culture also looks at these small films and they find things like office space. They find things like, you know, even being John Malkovich, like Spike Jones being John Malkovich. Um, you know, they even, even something that's like a smaller Hollywood production, like Three Kings, they find these mm. things. You know, 1999 is the year of these films that kind of like pulsate in very minor tones and very minor beats, but people grasp onto them because mm. the internet culture has finally grown to a certain point where, you know, following film and following the, the, the production schedule, you know, it's pre-Reddit and whatnot. It's pre, yeah. it's pre always being on the pulse of everything and everything needs to have a huge success and everything has expectations based upon its social media metrics. Well, I think, but, you know, I think it's an important movie here in the sense that this is made the first movie year where small cinema finds its space in the future. And here is, I would actually push that, that idea a little bit for Mic drop. I would present that a little bit further in the sense that I think that you could also say that it's the year that cinema became in some ways vaguely Prussian. So the Matrix kind of... Vaguely Prussian? Vaguely Prussian, yeah. So everyone, everyone, you know, 1999, JP can tell us all about 1999. People were really into Prussia in 1999. Jake Gyllenhaal was just making King of Persia. <laughs> just getting people ready thought it was for King that. of Prussia. Um, <laughs> No, like, um, prescient in the sense that it's, the movies reflected a culture that didn't exist yet. So, like, The Matrix reflected a culture where the internet was dominant, um, where you could be literally, you could have a completely separate identity on the internet than you do in real life. Something like Boys Don't Cry, literally in the middle of making Boys Don't Cry, Matthew Shepard was killed. And they were no. just kind of, and even Kimberly Pierce and Hilary Swank and all the people that were making were just very aware of the fact that what they were doing now had a resonance and a meaning beyond just being a regular movie. You know what I mean? That this type of, the culture and the film, like the films, the directors making these films and the writers, I suppose, but I'm going to give the credit more to the directors, um, were recognizing something in the culture that the culture wasn't seeing yet. And at some point, because of these movies, the culture was able to recognize certain things about itself um, that perhaps it didn't want to. You know what I mean? Like, that the internet was going to be a really big fucking deal. That, like, hate was not going away. Um, that, you know, Reese Witherspoon was going to be really unappealing as an actress for, you know, the next 20 years. <laughs> um... Yeah, we're like dancing around this. We're dancing around this conversation, but um, yeah, or even like something like Sixth Sense with spoiler culture. You know what I mean? With like trigger warning culture, in the sense that like now you literally can't fucking spoil anything. People get incensed if you mention in a review of something or in a conversation that you have with somebody like any of the major plot points in anything. And in the Sixth Sense. You know, that was the whole thing. The reason The Sixth Sense made as much money as it made is because people kept their fucking mouths shut. And that would never happen here. I mean, if right. The Sixth Sense opens in 2019, 
everybody, if you want to know what happens in the sixth sense, you will know what happens in the sixth sense. Like, let's start look at our podcast. Our podcast doesn't give a shit about spoilers. No, but like to the point where you know we did that spoiler alert for Avengers Endgame because we knew if we didn't, someone was going to say, "Hey, you spoiled the movie for me." We we probably would have been one of us would have been killed. Probably would have been me by one You're of your eighty listeners. By one of our eighty listeners, who would have been <laughs> Superman? Well, a couple of our listeners were Superman. Don't to be you fair. imagine though that all of our eighty listeners have crossbows? I do. I think all of our. I think we have a major crossbow. I hope like, so. You know, contingent. Yeah. I think so. I hope um, it's a sixty percent crossover. With, or and even, I mean, and even just to look at something like you know, Three Kings, <clears throat> where we're questioning. And I don't think we questioned this during the during Desert Storm. I don't really remember like the our reasons behind being in 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 you know the Middle East at that point, being in Iraq, being in Kuwait. Um, I don't think America in and of itself. I mean, I had Desert Storm trading cards. Um, I know. In 1992, I didn't question what we were doing in Desert Storm. I was just like, oh, these trading cards come with really hard gum. I'm going to have all these trading cards. Um, but three, Desert Storm trading cards? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Three Kings... General Schwarzkopf, baby. Three Kings almost suggests what was going to happen in 2002. You know what I mean? And the pulse, and the pulse of that and the pulse of that was shock and awe. Like, like the culture <laughs> kind of rejects it. Like, a good contingent of the culture rejects what happens in 2002, 2003 with that instantaneously. But because I think of films David like... David Russell, who is a Three filmmaker Kings. that I don't really like, was like... Because he's bad. But David o. Russell was saying in Three Kings about Desert Storm what we were all saying about Operation whatever they called it. Iraqi Freedom or whatever. You know what I mean? Or, is it Enduring Freedom? Enduring Freedom, yeah. Um... He was saying that at, at, at that exact same time. I mean, uh, it's, um, it's no, it, strange. No. It's strange how all these how that works out. Where is it? And, well, I was gonna say again. I haven't read the book, but one thing that's striking to me is that there's a lot of new directors coming into their own here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, pain. I mean, I think. Seven, well, we're gonna that, finish on pain. Yeah. Well, it's gonna be a lot of pain. <laughs> I mean, I think Seven's better than Fight Club, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, who else? Um, I mean, you have you have Wes Anderson. Like Bottle Rockets, not Rushmore, but like not Rushmore's even mentioned. It's, it's, it's Rushmore's in the book, but, but uh, in the book, but like yeah, Sofia Coppola's in there. Um, yeah, you know, Christopher Nolan's mentioned. Mike Judge doing Office Space for a feature. M Night Shyamalan, you know, what I mean, all you know. Um, uh, it, Christopher Nolan's mentioned in passing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's following. a slew of new directors. <laughs> Welcome back. My number 54 is a movie that I'm sure a lot of people... What? Hold on a second. Hold the phone. Well, really, just like your movie last week, I kind of wish our movies, our lists were different, so like we could match up like the really just interesting movies with yeah. the interesting movie. Um, but you know how long the episode would be? Yeah, that'd be that'd be a long one. Um, my number fifty-four is Rob Reiner's nineteen eighty-four rockumentary. This is Spinal Tap. Through two decades, seventeen classic albums, countless unforgettable concert triumphs, they changed the face of British rock music forever. And the best part is, they're back. <laughs> 
Now, they are on the verge of the greatest comeback of all time. Rock and roll! This is their moment. Right straight through this door here, down the hall. Yeah. Turn right. Their time has come. Rock and roll! Any minute now. Any second. Hello, stage. I think we're lost. There's a little jog there. About 30 feet. Jog to the left. Get ready. Get set. Spinals have is a fictional band. Uh, the band is played by Michael McKean as David St. Hubbins, Christopher Guest as Nigel Tufnell, uh, and Harry Shearer as Bo. Derek Smalls. Um, they have, uh, you know, a couple of other guys. They have a drummer, they have a keyboard player, Viv Savage. Uh, their drummers um, have a tendency to die in gardening accidents or by spontaneously combusting and turning into little green gobules on their drum stools. Um, Rob Reiner is in this movie. He plays the documentary filmmaker Marty DeBerge, um, who is wearing like a naval uh, hat the whole time for no reason, um, which I think is pretty funny. Um, and it just follows... <clears throat> Spinal Tap around as uh, the mockumentary, the, the 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 crew follows Spinal Tap around as they promote on their tour to promote their newest album that um, has not come out yet, but is supposed to come out, but is just not coming out because of album cover reasons called Smell the Glove. Uh, eventually, the record does come out and it has just an all black um, front and back cover. It's just black. Um it can't be any more black. Um, they break up. They get back together. There's some really funny interview sequences um, in the style of all of the Christopher Guest movies that we would kind of come to know and love um, later. You know, the best in show, Waiting for Guffman, For Your Consideration, A Mighty Wind um, type movies. Um, <clears throat> this is on my list for a couple of reasons. I think one of them is because... It, um, for me, it kind of has to be. I mean, I grew up with um, it goes to eleven, and like stone, the idea of Stonehenge and um, spontaneously combusting drummers um, as just facts of 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 my life, um, along with like various Monty Python things um, from uh, Holy Grail, but also from the um, from Flying Circus. Like I knew. Like, the parrot sketch was just a thing that I knew about when I was a kid. I just knew it's <laughs> it's pining for the fjords. Um, it was just a phrase that came out of my dad's mouth, maybe more than he he realizes. Um, so there's that. I mean, it's kind of a... It's like a pivotal... I don't think I saw it... Like, I didn't see it when I was a kid, I don't think. But I definitely was aware of all the things. I was aware of Spinal Tap. I was aware of these these specific jokes... Um, of of like how these guys looked and how they acted and in, in the humor and stuff, um, but it was also on my list for kind of this for a similar reason to um, why La Jatie was on my list last week. In that, the more you live with a thing, if it's really important to you, you're gonna kind of you're gonna reassess these things every once in a while. Um, that being the case, me and my buddy John Paul. Um, well, where John Paul is now, 
Yeah. You moved to Boston. You said, did you say you moved to Boston? Yeah, that's what I heard. I don't know if that's true anymore. Um, but we went through a big um, spinal tap phase in when we were in our late teens, early 20s. Um, you know, a kind of re-association um, with this thing that I had kind of known my whole life. Um, that being the case, I didn't, like growing up, I didn't know what any of the songs were. Um, like Sex Farm and Big Bottom and Hell Hole. And like I knew what Stone, I knew the joke for Stonehenge, which is that like the the Stonehenge model comes down out of the sky and it's only eighteen inches tall, and like the d- <laughs> the dwarves are just dancing around it and kind of knocking it over and stuff. Yeah. Um, I knew that joke, but I didn't know like the lyrics to to Stonehenge. Like to that end, I knew I think that the joke for Big Bottom was that there was four bass guitars being played. So Derek Smalls, the bass player, has a double neck bass, and then both David St. Hubbins and Nigel also are playing bass guitars. So it's just all bass. But like when I was a kid, I didn't know I didn't know what the lyrics were, and if I did, I wouldn't have known I met her on Monday, twas my lucky Bunday. I wouldn't have known what that meant. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what the sweeter um the softer the cushion, the sweeter the pushin' meant. I wouldn't have known what I love her each weekday, each velvety cheek day means. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have known what mud flaps are. Um, but in when I was a, in my when I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty, that this whole thing of Spinal Tap was a really big deal to me, and not that it was funny. Like me and my buddy John Paul, we had this band called the Stilettos, and we had another band which is a T Rex cover band called Zinc Alloy and the Hidden Riders of Tomorrow, which is a T Rex record. Um, both of those bands were heavily inspired by um, Spinal Tap, and not because we were funny. Like, we weren't funny. Like, the idea was not to be a joke band. We were a serious band. But we knew that being a serious band meant that you could be really super funny if you wanted to. And you didn't have to take yourself seriously, and you could do, like, a pastiche of other genres and other um, musical things and put them all together. Um like yeah, like we were also okay with the the jazz odyssey idea is still like the <laughs> the funniest thing ever. They run yeah. out of songs, and I guess that means jazz odyssey in front of like thirty people in a pavilion at a state fair. Um, but yeah, I mean it's just it's it's those it, uh, Spinal Tap for me. It's again, it just kind of has to be on my list. It's it's a very it's a significant movie, um, but it's one of those ones that I love it more now. Since I got reacquainted with it when I was when I was a teenager, and even like now, like I was just kind of listening to. Ha- I got really into Hellhole over the last week. And the lyrics are, like, funny, but also kind of not funny. Like, they make a lot of sense, but they're also really funny. Like, the lyrics for Sex Farm are, like, the innuendos are, the innuendos are great, but it also kind of sounds like he's working on a farm.
are great. And I didn't know what those were when I was a kid. And I like those are also like pretty good rock and roll songs that Kiss would have been super jealous like to write. And would have released as singles if they did write them. Yeah. And actually probably released songs that are very close to that as singles that people find are hits. Um, I think it's okay. It's, it's the worst possible way of, of describing my opinion of it is that I think it's fine. I think, I think it's entertaining. Um, I, it's just, it's a minor guess to me. Mm. Like, like, I'm a huge, like, best in show guy. I love best in show. You know, the, the long description of various types of nuts you can get. Yep. Um, and, I don't know, just a lot of the jokes here just don't land for me. I don't know if it's because, like, it's entered the pop culture, mm-hmm. like, you know, become a pop culture, like, iconoclast, almost. Um that just doesn't, it's not as funny to me. Here's what I would say, though. I would argue that, so I think this is, I think, maybe my favorite Christopher Guest movie, if only because the whole thing um, is, it's it's of a whole. So I think one of the problems that I always have with Christopher Guest movies is that you have these digressions into nothingness, where they're funny, but they have nothing to do with anything that's happening on screen. Um, and that has always really kind of bugged me about Christopher Guest movies is that they just take these paths and they're not character development they're just like they're just weird jokes and i i think for me one of the kind of the pleasures of spinal tap is it 100% works as a documentary about like a band like a a, a mid-level band that's turning into like a not, almost turning into a non-entity um and it works really it works perfectly as that documentary like, if you told someone that, like, this is a real thing, they'd be like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? If, like, yeah. in 20 years, you tell someone, like, this is, you know, if you cut that rockumentary thing out of it, or you just, you just, you don't frame it as, like, a, a fictional thing, they would be like, well, okay. Well, this band, what's, what's up with this, what are up with these guys? This seems like a weird band. Um, like, it's just kind of that, it's just that well made. And it's that well executed for me. And not to say that the other Christopher Guest movies aren't well executed. They're just they're just different. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, for some reason, to me, this always felt weirdly disjointed, actually. I don't know if it's... I've never been big on Reiner as a director. All of his films have always felt pretty disjointed. I think Princess Bride's the only one... I'm trying to think of... Princess Bride, Misery, and A Few Good Men are probably the only ones of his that, that feel like whole films. I, mean, I would argue that a few, good, a few Good Men is tonally really strange. Well, it is, but I think it, it feels... It doesn't feel disjointed. It's tonally weird, but like it narratively feels fine. And this just... This tonally feels weird, and because it's so gotta be set by tone, because it's gonna be narratively kind of askew due to its, its nature, like it, it... Do you think it's, it's because you're not striking. like a rock guy? Like that, this stuff just doesn't mean anything to you. I guess that's fair. I always thought like maybe like I have watched. We always talked about how I'm not big on the rock doc, but like this felt so in the moment, more so. Like everything felt like very present, which a lot of rock documentaries to me never felt like really present in the moment and right next to the shit sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And this felt like that was that, and it ended up feeling more like they're being an observer to skits 
and sketches. Um, kind of, but it's also, yeah, I think that's true. I think it's true about like any of these things, but I also think it, you know, um, like if you watch a lot of the rock movies that come after this, like even like something like rocket man or like almost famous, um, they're all unfortunately for them in a way kind of aping like spinal tap, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like where the new guy comes in, the new guy played by, um, Paul Schaefer, um, you know, he's like the, their A&R guy in this town and he's going to take them to this record store and they're going to do all this other, they're going to, you know, sign all these records and the joke is that nobody comes and there's, they have a million of these records there and he has to kick them in the ass. Um, but like, there, you know, that stuff is aped. All those manager conversations have been aped in like a thousand movies at this point. Um, and it's just, it's amusing that all that stuff came from Spinal Tap. So, and I would argue like how much of rock and roll do I know from, um, actual rock and roll and how much do I just know from Spinal Tap and have just put on top of stuff. How much of people's behavior, of like bands' behavior in like the 80s was because of like Spinal Tap, of wanting to be Spinal Tap. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that's my 54. I won't belabor the point. Um, we will be right back with Mario's 54. So before we start, Tom, I believe we have uh, one last drink to consume. It is also from Fox on Park, but this is the draft style root beer. Root beer. Let's see how it compares to last week's root beer. Definitely not as sweet. Yeah, that's a good root beer. I like that for that one. It's got, it's definitely got that root taste. What is, what is a root yeah. beer typically made from? Ginger root? Is it? I don't know. I always thought it tastes like fennel, but... I'm assuming it's not fennel. Sassafras. Sassafras. The sassafras tree. Just a vine. vine. Usually from Maine. From Maine to Iowa. That's where it's local. And from Florida to Texas. Those are weird places. It's got like a minty. I like that minty flavor. I like that. It it tastes... But tastes kind of like a... Medicinal, like it's like a guy like a Mike's medicinal, but like a pleasant medicinal. Well, I think that so the birch beer taste. and this have like a bite to it, where yeah. the the other one last week, the Saranac root beer was just kind of a flat one note, standard root beer, little creamier, very sweet taste. This has like a little bit of um, other flavors, like a uh, punching it, in. Yeah, like a like it would be comparable to ginger, but I guess it's sassafras. Tastes more like a sarsaparilla. Mm. If you ever had a sarsaparilla, it's good. I like it. It's better I like than two root beers. Yeah. Put a little more in here. Put a little more in this Top corner. it off. Before we talk about our, our my number fifty four, we're gonna need it. Oh boy! Especially when we eat this this bowl of stewed tomatoes. <laughs> oh, unfortunately, that is not. In college, I was a pretty big fan of um, the Revenge trilogy. The, the Vengeance trilogy, the, um, the good old Park Chan-wook trilogy. Mm-hmm. Not not the biggest fan, as it were, of um, Old Boy. I like Old Boy, but I didn't really love it. Okay. Really loved Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, but also really enjoyed Lady Vengeance. Lady Vengeance had a one particularly interesting, solid villain role. Uh, played by actor uh, Cho Min Sink, I believe. Seek, I'm guys. How's it going to be? Another tough one, as yeah. we know, it's going to be a tough one. 
So when I saw that he would be starring in a movie, when I saw he's going to be in the movie, that was pretty well acclaimed upon its release. Um, it's only on eighty. Surprising. Um, directed by the man who had directed the good, bad, the weird, which mm-hmm. I re- re- enjoyed quite a bit, Park Hoon Jung. Uh, I realized I had to had to catch this flick. And that film was the 2010 revenge horror, I Saw the Devil. my storytelling mode. <laughs> uh, Chomin Sik plays a bus driver who moonlights. Well, more. He plays a serial killer who, who moonlights, moonlights as a bus driver um, who stumbles upon a girl stuck in a snowbank. Snow kind of like muddy. You got a flat bank, tire. Flat tire. But it's kind of like said like you're really stuck in there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he is wont to do, being a serial killer moonlighting as a bus driver, he fixes her tire, takes her underway. No, he, yeah. he murders her. Uh, it so happens that this woman was the fiance of Kim, who is a agent for the National Intelligence Service. So got a little bit of talent in um, discovering who murdered his fiance. He could do some things. Uh, he hunts down. Uh, Zhang, um, and then proceeds to over an hour and a half, 40 minutes of film following, slowly torture him in a, a game of cat and mouse that is mostly cat rattling mouse until mouse fights back a bit and then gets decapitated mm-hmm. in front of its parents and, and child. Um, this just works on every level for me. Um, I talked last week about during the <laughs> um, <laughs> review, uh, as Tom called it, Midsomar. I don't still still debate that. Either one, either one. Um, horror works for me on on the visceral sense, the, on on the sense of, of driving tension through the action, through through the moments that you see, through the viscerality, the brutality. This is this is a. A little bit of a brutal film at parts, um, but but it is driven in many scenes by tension. You know, you have a couple nice little fight scenes between uh, Zhang and Kim, which are not not incredibly tense. But um, the things that strike me are, are just the two uh, master class mo- three master class kind of moments in building tension. Um, you know that that initial murder of of, of um, Zhang uh, Zhuyong, um, the 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 fiance, you know, just just a slow build, uh, where, you know, they're 
he kind of lingers there for a second, steps back, and eventually when she turns, she wonders why he hasn't driven off, when she turns off the headlights, that's when he's there. You know, kind of an old classic sort of horror trope, but done just with with precision. Mm-hmm. Um, after uh, uh, Zhang is, is uh, kind of beat to a pulp by Kim um, later on in the film, um, he awakens and finds a taxi. The taxi turns out to be basically two robbers who we can only presume are going to murder him. Um, and after oh, a yeah. long, nice little conversation about how he feels awfully lucky to have stumbled upon two passengers, uh, Zhang kind of slowly looks, and there's just a lot of looking while the dialogue kind of like goes in and out. Um, I mean, it's always there, but the, the, the volume of the dialogue and just this moment of building, and it builds for so long and builds and builds and builds. Eventually, Zhang just absolutely slaughters these two men <laughs> in just an intensely violent scene where the can where the camera's definitely cutting around but it feels like it's always kind of like a floating camera it's it not it's you know it's cutting back and forth but so effortlessly moves around well the blood is like spraying everywhere and yeah. so there's not really an opportunity for them to do anything about that um so yeah it seems like a kind of long take where there's just the cameras in the car with them Mario's computer just ate itself. Yeah. Just decided it was going to shut down for a second. Wonder if it's turned it. Oh, no, I'm reading. Um, and just yeah, it just it just moves around with with just this intensity and and just like, it, it's a build, a slow build to to what you think would be a, a sudden moment of action, but it's an unrelenting mm. moment of just pure brutality, which which in a way kind of like helps to facilitate this this omnipresence that Jang has kind of in the beginning. Even though he's getting the shit kicked out of him, he's still this kind of like ethereal figure of remorselessness and, and just violence and self-preservation and um, cruelty. Cruelty? Cruelty. Um, and building to that final scene. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think a lot of people, you will particularly, and some people I've talked to don't think works as well because it feels rather easy um not easy it feels like he's let off easier it doesn't feel like it goes far enough for some people um but but to me it always works because you know zhang is still convinced he's won um mm-hmm. when well, he did win i mean that's the kind of more yeah, yeah, the moral of the story is that like for all of the stuff that kim thought he um and kim should just kill the guy was gonna get away with he he ended up getting his father-in-law Killed Blinded and his sister-in-law and... killed, and I don't think, I don't think are they murdered? I think yeah. He's... Well, so I mean, this... they just beat to a pulp. But here's the thing: so, but people that get beat to a pulp in this movie that aren't named Zhang don't, <laughs> or that aren't serial killers, die, and the serial killers can get beat to so blood those, those... is shooting out of their heads, and they'll just continue to live perfectly normal. It was, it was a unique, unique decision there to have Zhang get beat in the head with a pipe for what feels like a minute and kind of just be okay. Yeah. Um, but that final scene for me works so well, just cause like that's like at the very least they both lose. Like everyone well, he, loses. He, I think Jang loses something that he didn't know that he, he had. Didn't know it was on the table. Which is like these people's, he didn't, like he didn't win the game of cat and mouse. Kind right. of. He, they ultimately both had something 
he always wants to have that position of power. That's always been his thing. Mm-hmm. He knows he's always one step ahead of the game. And he was and he, ahead of Kim, but Kim just was one step ahead of him in a way he never expected. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works to, to where they both fail. Like, that's kind of like the, the tendency of kind of like a lot of South Korean vengeance films has always kind of been like, no matter where you are, vengeance doesn't really ever get you anywhere. And it's like the moralism of it just works outstandingly well when I saw Double compared to, I'm a fan of the Park Chan you know, just all, most of his films. Um, mm-hmm. But just like, it, 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 here it works just the best because it is so, no one wins. There's, there's right. no so slight chance of victory. It's, it's, it's a fatalism. Well, there's, a, there's, in this movie, I think it's, um, the moralizing is reduced to like a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's the quality of his own soul versus the quality, quality of like, South Korean souls are like a universal soul. Like in the, um, like in some of the American kind of torture porn things where they try to put like a weird moral on it, like, well, you're all like this, or, you know, why do you all have to be like this? And I'm torturing you because all people are like this and you represent those people. And this is just kind of like, you killed my fiance. Um, he doesn't even really seem to care about the other people. He's like, you killed my fiance and now I'm going to destroy your life. Um, and it's I'm not... gonna let a lot of people who will probably die because of this, because I'm not stopping you now, die just to well, exact I mean, my own former. Revenge. So that's interesting. So he puts that he puts that device inside of him, you know, kicks his fucking ass, and then puts that device inside of him so he can so he can track him. Um, Pounds his head repeatedly into a rock. He's nevertheless he <laughs> lives enough to get up and walk away, like pretty soon after that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kill a bunch is, of other people. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I didn't know it was coming. Like, that he would live. I was like, well, that was kind of fast. Um, and then he lives and walks away, and he's got all this money. And um, I, he, he put that thing in him, so I was like, huh. You know, okay. But then he, then he bashed his head against that rock, like, ten times. And suffocated him to a point. Like where, like if what he lives, like how you know, how is he, how much living is he actually going to do here? Um, Plenty, yeah, apparently a lot. Um, so I found it. It's so well. It, it's it's so well made that, and this is to your point about mid uh, Midsummer. Um, the narrative here is so easy. Mm. It's just revenge. You know what I mean? There's a twist that, like, he's going to kind of let him live and chase him down and just, like, keep trying, like, keep beating the shit out of him forever if he can help it. Um, but, like, it's from a from a theme standpoint, it's just, it's easy. It's a revenge thing. So he can focus on telling the story coherently, even when it doesn't make any sense, and shooting it pretty much perfectly. I mean, this movie is, I didn't see a lot of dropped shots here. You know what I mean? No, like, yeah. it's every shot, whether you know it or not, is the perfect shot. Is the best way to shoot this to get the, the, the mood and the atmosphere that you're really kind of going for, which is one of just kind of foreboding um, an, an acknowledgement that, like, pain is more pain is always coming. I mean, that's the, kind of the fascinating thing about this movie. Once it starts, it doesn't really let up. Yeah, it's, for, it's like Until it turns into a car chase movie. And then it kind of breathes for like a half hour, unfortunately, like right before the ending. Um, but yeah, then it just, it's just 
relentless is like the perfect word for it. And he finds new ways to be terrible. Like he finds new terrible things to show us like throughout this movie. Like when he cuts his Achilles, Achilles tendon. tendon. Yeah. Which is great. It's pretty it's pretty standard in, in Korean horror film too. <laughs> sure. But it's just it doesn't make it easier to watch. And that's the thing too, like this like I I noticed like it still feels there's a realness to it, even though it's 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 dialed up to eleven. Yeah, there right. you go. <laughs> That's why it, I, it hit me because like this things have been in my like life forever. Yeah. Um, but it still feels like there there is a rawness to it. Like mm. Reese talked about the the cannibalism scene with um oh what's the the, the cannibal friend of his um Teju Kung yeah um like that. It kind of looks ridiculous, like we said. Like you said, I'll never get some some nachos from Archie Moore's, as we were want to do. There was no people meat on those. No, there's there's chicken meat um, and jalapenos. Maybe people look like jalapenos, mm-hmm. but it looks like a bowl of tomatoes. It looked like a bowl of stewed tomatoes, and I even though I assumed it was a person um, or people meat, it looked like tomatoes, and I was really hoping it was tomatoes, and then. It was discussed openly that it is not tomatoes, and that but being a cannibal may be like fucking with his head. But um, but it still looks kind of silly to an extent, and a lot of the gore in this is silly to an extent. Like during that that car scene, you know, um, there's an inordinate amount of blood shooting out of every orifice. He stabs him lots of times. The head rolls comically to the parents. Yeah, and and the ch- and and the son, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it feel there's a rawness to it in, in the emotion. Um, yes, and, and yes, that that it sells that, like it can yes. still be over the top in its violence, but it's so sincere, um, to to an extent that, that a lot of other films in the genre weren't, um, or or and and kind of sincere and reductionist. It reduces like the the frill and the kind of extraneous aspects that a lot of like revenge cinema does mm-hmm. and just makes it so personal and so reduced to a point well, that you just buy it. Right. And I think that's kind of what we were talking about last week too with um, Leisure T and like in Alphaville where you don't need all the shit. You just need a good concept and it needs to be executed well for an audience to kind of believe that this is actually happening or an audience for an audience to Accept what we understand to be true about life, which is that if someone smashes your head against a rock um, six to ten times, you are probably going to be dead. Or have a significant amount of brain damage to the point where you're not waking up right away. I mean, a guy gets hit like twice in the crotch and his right. dick is destroyed. <laughs> right, yeah. I remember I think, that part. I think that if, was a rough part. Well, I love the part, like the cop that laughs. <laughs> About it? Yeah, he smashed his dick. <laughs> guys. But, like, so the point where, like, a guy can get his Achilles tendon cut, like, stabbed through and then just sliced, but couldn't spend the whole rest of the movie walking around. Uh, excuse me, he has a little cast on and, like... Sure, he's treated, <laughs> but he spends the whole rest of the movie walking. I mean, he's not walking well, but he's yeah. walking. Um, or, like you said... If that... He's walking... Pretty well. <laughs> After when he goes to the, you know, his cannibal friend's house, and 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 um, Kim, you know, follows him there, and um, I really wanted to see him like cut that guy apart. 
Um, that would have made me very happy. But then both him and Zhang, he just beats them in the head with that pipe and blood is shooting out of their head. But he gets up. He They treat him. But even if you get treated from a head injury like that, and if you are left in like a... <laughs> a vegetative state of some sort. And like... um. You know, uh, what is that, like an aqueduct or like whatever it is yeah. over there? And just in a, a dry riverbed, you're not going to get up and walk away laughing. But you don't care because you want, it's so well done, you want to see whatever the next thing is going to be. You know what I mean? You just want to see how far, far this can escalate. And that's the beauty. That's, that's, and, that's and that's almost like the thing. Like, I, it's, it's, it's to an extent has like, no, nah, I want to say spiritual, but to an extent has like a moralism in its end. Where he always is, Chang's always convinced he's one. You know, he's always got that one up. And the one part where he feels he doesn't is the thing that actually kills him. <laughs> is yeah. the time he's actually, the one part where he's actually broken mm-hmm. is the one part, despite all the things that could have killed him, the one part where, you know, he was two moves, a move behind is the mm-hmm. thing where he finally well, gets to say, I mean, it's, assuming. It's, it's, Assume you, of course, getting decapitated killed him. I mean, there's... We can always... We, can always, we have to speculate. <laughs> I mean, now they show his body after they show his head into their hands. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an expertly made film in the sense that... Like, I still see the devil. They, yeah. They show that... They have that scene at his parents' house where they're kind of bad... His, the dad is bad-mouthing him, but the, the mom kind of maintains this like, allegiance to this idea of who her son is. Um, and it seems like... Um, their grandson Zhang's son kind of does the same thing like he he's not aware of like the nature of who his father really is his father is obviously 100% absent but he must still maintain this kind of feeling like oh he's my dad Um, and then he must know that and that's why the ending is um, if it maintains any profundity it's because for that very reason that that it's that thing that's breaking, and not just his, um, you know, spine and tendons and muscles that hold his head to the rest of his body. No, I do have to say this though, just just as a side. Min uh, played also plays a, a pretty evil villain in um, Lady Vengeance. That guy is great in this too. Like that guy knows how to play a bad guy. Which who? Which who is this? He's Jing. Oh, okay, yeah. That guy knows how to fucking play a bad guy. Yeah, he's very good. I mean, one of the things... I think one of the flaws of this movie is that, like, they give him reasons. They, like, put reasons in his mouth for, like, what he's doing. Like, oh, all you bitches are blah, 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 blah. Like, he yeah, says yeah. that stuff a lot. If he didn't say anything, I would have just been like, holy shit. Like, like he's this just guy's... a walking... Imbo- <laughs> he's, you know, the Anton... He's... Anton Chagar turned up to 11 and I buy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, with oh, the why whole... I do that? I did it again. You don't even know you're doing it. It's just there. It's just in the ether. And you just, everyone just pulls it Christopher Guest is like, did it. Maybe it's like his, his way to like create new speak. He's also drinking a root beer right now. In like a leather chair. Him and, him and Jamie Lee Curtis are just hanging out. You think they just eat Activia and drink root beer all day? Yeah. He's like, do you remember when I was in Parliament? Was he in Parliament? Huh. He was indeed. He was. Uh, can we get him House back? In, can we get him back in Parliament? <laughs> Do you think he'd, he'd think he'd vote against Brexit? Yeah, from ninety six to ninety nine. Huh. Good for him. Because it was a hereditary peerage, but then that all got taken away. Uh, no more hereditary peerage. Sons of bitches. 
if you um, are you done? Yeah, just a great movie. Um, it is really good, and I saw the Devil, but we're going back to I saw the Devil, not, is, not not the film Parliament, Hereditary <laughs> Peerage. It is um, it's tough. It's a tough fucking watch. It's yeah, if not, you're not a it's fan, one hundred percent not for everybody. Midsommar is more like viewer yeah, friendly that's, than, that's the thing. than I saw that's the, the devil. thing too like like they talk about how visceral and bloody and like how close to NC-17 blah 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 and like they're sure there's the sex stuff from Midsommar but like this is like in terms of the violence this makes Midsommar look but the sex stuff and I don't really want to go back to Midsommar but the sex stuff from Midsommar is like nothing like the the, well, like the everything yeah. the everything stuff in I saw the devil is like there's not a moment I saw the devil where you're like okay there's not a moment of something where you're just like, well, that's not that bad. Yeah, you're just like, no, this is you're like this is all, all bad, bad all the time. There's a reason that movie film doesn't have a United States rating <laughs> because that rating is solidly in the NC-17. Camp. I mean, when you so when you are making a movie and you have a serial killer and he has a, a victim wrapped in plastic, stripped naked with her arm chained up, so he can like cut it easier, and then she says that she's pregnant and she says, please don't kill me. And all the serial killer does is kind of take a sad, deep breath that he has to even have this conversation before hacking her up. You are doing something right slash messed up. Yeah. And, and Midsummer doesn't have one moment that's at all in that kind of category of uh, that's that holds the gravity that that one kind of like cold sigh just <sighs> has. Like it just doesn't have it. No. And that's and that's why we feel that way about it, and we feel this way about this movie. Oh, that cannibal scene, man! That's a tough scene. Yeah, it's hard. It, it kind of lives the color on his lips, like lives in my brain now. And if you have problems with cannibal scenes, or want to suggest cannibal scenes to us that aren't real cannibalism, please. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. No real cannibalism. Yeah, no that's weirdo six, YouTube six, stuff that I need to, like, register for. The sixth camp of people who we don't want to hear from is people who show us real cannibalism scenes. Yeah, no dark... No. If you want dark, to show us a fun porn parody of other movies that aren't I Saw the Devil, like, your fun... I, I, this is Spinal Tap porn parody? Go right ahead. You think there are? You think there are? Some? Oh, easily. Rule 34, my friend. Rule 34. Um, you can tweet us at twitter.com slash... Film pivotal. I when I'm sober, it's I tough. don't know. I feel the drunk, Twitter name, but yeah. I, we haven't had anything. Um, yeah, or you can send us an email to pivotalfilmpodcast@gmail.com, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and look at a list of the movies that are on our lists, or the list of the beers that we drank um, on the list of the list. Um, or you can send us a message, or you can subscribe to. Us via iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else you get podcasts. Um, but yeah, until then, watch a scary, fucked up South Korean horror action film. Um, drink a beer or a root beer, but preferably a beer. And we will talk to you next week. Indeed. <laughs>